You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. to our sermon text, uh, Luke chapter 5, as we've been looking at the life of Jesus. So if you would, it's printed on your service sheet. If you have your Bible, would you turn uh, to Luke chapter 5, and we'll be looking at the first uh, 26 verses. So again, you'll remember the context of chapter 4, the temptation of Jesus Christ, his rejection at Nazareth, but the proclamation of the gospel message from Isaiah 61, and Jesus' power to tearing down the strongholds of Satan by healing this man with an unclean demon and healing Peter's mother-in-law and healing these people in mass, and that Jesus has come to preach the good news of the kingdom of God, and that leads us into chapter 5. So hear these words from Holy Scripture, starting in verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep, and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done, when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that had taken place. And so also James and John, the son of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for proof of them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to to desolate places and pray. On one of those days, he was teaching. Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before them, before Jesus. 
And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thought, he answered them, Why do you question in your heart? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Well, I know that is a long reading, as Luke's chapters are quite long, and you'll have to forgive the, the preacher for not being able to find a way to subdivide chapter 5 into three sections. Um, I've looked and looked and could not find a way to make three sermons out of chapter 5. Some of you may rejoice that we'll be only having two sermons in chapter 5. I don't know. But chapter 5 and 6 of Luke, they can sound like they're these vignettes or, or episodes in the life of Jesus that are slightly maybe disconnected. I mean, even as I'm, I'm reading this, it just seems to, to jump with a little segue between these three different episodes. But there does seem to be some construction to the way that Luke has framed chapters 5 and 6, which partly is why I found it difficult to divide them into three sections. Uh, because the section we just read is linked together by Jesus' authority. And you'll notice the way in which he acts in each of these three episodes. His authority... Uh, over people in the first one. His second one is authority that is greater than that of the priests. And finally, in the last one we read, his authority over the lawyers or the scribes and the Pharisees. But then Luke, after demonstrating Jesus' authority here in the first 26 verses, uh, in the second half of chapter 5, he'll begin showing Jesus' teaching, the way in which people should relate their attitudes towards others, and then he'll conclude chapter 5 with a threefold parable. And I bring all of that up because once we move into chapter 6, once again, the first 19 verses deal with Jesus' authority. His authority over the Sabbath, over, the, over his authority over healing, and his authority over all this sickness. And then Luke concludes in verses 20 through 49 of chapter 6, more teaching from Jesus, really mirroring the account of the Sermon on the Mount, and then proceeds to end chapter 6 with a threefold parable. So it's, it's clear to me that Luke is constructing these two chapters to really, again, show us in addressing that question that Luke's really highlighting. Who is the Son of Man? Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? We've already seen in chapter 4 how he is the one who has come to free us from spiritual captivity. He is the one who is proclaiming liberty to the captives and demonstrating his power to make us whole. And in chapters 5 and 6, we'll see Jesus has this authority as the Son of Man, that he can command and he has authority over, but then he's also able to demand of us certain beliefs and certain actions, really his, his teachings. And so this morning, we'll just look at these three episodes, Jesus' authority over people, the first 11 verses. Jesus' authority over the priests, uh, verses 12 through 16, and Jesus' authority over the lawyers, verses 17 through 20, 
6. And you'll note the way that chapter 5 begins with Jesus preaching and proclaiming the word of God, just as what it ended in chapter 4, saying that is his mission. He must preach the word of God. He must preach the kingdom. And so we can assume, Luke doesn't need to tell us what he's preaching, but likely it's in reference to Isaiah 61, liberty to the captives. The son of man is here in order to tear down the strongholds of Satan, to heal our diseases and to bring us to God. And so Jesus now is preaching this around the lake of Gennesaret, which it's actually just another name for the Sea of Galilee. Uh, the town of Gennesaret is actually south below Capernaum. And so this is one of those things, I'm sure there are plenty, where they have two different names, apparently, based on where you are uh, in reference to it. And so Jesus is surrounded by this crowd of people on the Sea of Galilee, and so to continue his teaching, uh, he gets into these fishing boats, this fishing boat owned by Simon Peter. And they push out a little ways, and Jesus sits down as is normal of a, of a teacher who is going to be uh, teaching the people. And as I showed the children, I think I always assumed that the fishing boats were smaller. And so you would think Jesus sitting down in this wobbly boat with Simon Peter trying to handle it. But the boats are actually much bigger, much larger vessels. Uh, and so it would be actually pretty easy for Jesus to sit down, but they would have crews to operate these so Jesus is teaching, and Luke uh, really wants to highlight for us the, the miracle that Jesus does, which is really to confirm his teaching, or really ends up being another time, or another event for him to teach through. And actually, if you've read Matthew and Mark recently, I am always struck by the way in which Jesus just commands the fishermen to follow him, and they just up and do it. It always seems a miracle to me that at those mere words, they would respond that way. And I think Matthew and Mark are, are highlighting the fact that Jesus has that authority. He has that ability that he can just command and at a moment's notice, these men drop everything to follow Jesus. But I think what Luke here is doing, he's expanding upon this well-known passage by showing us the way in which Jesus demonstrates his authority over just the natural world. In verse 4, the second half, we, we have this uh, miracle that's really tailor-made for these fishermen. Right? Jesus, here, after preaching and teaching, uh, tells Simon Peter to put his net out. And it does. It, it could seem, I'm sure, at the time was comical to Simon Peter, who owns this boat, has this crew, has these partners, and is a seasoned fisherman, that this carpenter preacher is telling him how to do his job. But right, this isn't Jesus teaching about how we can be better fishermen. Right, this is not a, a, a way in which, if you're like me and you've gone fishing before and you've caught nothing, this is not a, a practical way in which you can solve that dilemma. Rather, this is this miracle to demonstrate who Jesus is and the authority that he has. And so Peter responds with this word, Master, we've been doing this all night. And the way they would have been doing it is they would have had these large nets that at night the fish wouldn't be able to see them. And so then they would swim into here and you would be able to close the nets around them and have this big haul of fish. So they had been working throughout the night. They had caught nothing. It had been a worthless day for them. They're tired. They're mending and cleaning their nets. 
And we, we can't really read into Peter's response if he was incredulous at being told to do this. It does sort of sound that way. That Master, we, we know what we're doing. But even in the midst of that, I, I, I'm also just astonished. Even though Peter believes this to be folly, he does obey. He does obey. Rather, a, a strange request of Jesus. And you also note the way in which Peter refers to Jesus. He refers to him as master. And this, this word comes from Greek. It's epistates, if I'm pronouncing that right. And the reason I say that is not so you have to learn this Greek word, but just to point out that it's not the word kurios. The word kurios, which means Lord, can also be translated as master. So Peter here is just using a, a lower word to refer to him as master. And the reason I bring that up is that's going to be important in a moment. And so Jesus tells him to put the nets down, and suddenly they're full of fish. And not just, not just there's a great haul before them, but now they're, they're starting to sink. They're having to signal other boats to come. Those boats join up and start bringing in these fish. And with these extra boats, those boats are now all starting to sink under the weight of this catch. And so that's where we have in verse 8 Peter's response to this. Peter, who falls down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And what's happening here is Peter, who is this seasoned fisherman, who knows what could reasonably be expected from a haul of fish, even on his best day, would never be in a situation where his boats and partner's boats would be sinking from the weight of the fish that they have hauled in. Peter knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that not only is this incredibly unusual to catch fish during the day with these nets, but to catch this abundance amount of fish. And he knows right at that moment when he's falling down upon his knees, when he sees you know, the boat sinking under the weight, that all of this has happened because the Lord Jesus said. And Peter here has his eyes and his mind open and in full recognition. He confesses, I am, I am sinful. And think of the words that he's using there. Not just, I'm stupid, right? I'm, I'm silly for doubting you. But here in the presence of the Lord Jesus, in the presence of this amazing miracle and this authority to have control and command over, over fish in the ocean, Peter at that moment seems to realize that this is not just a really good teacher. That this is not just a powerful, charismatic teacher. That rather, this is the Lord God Almighty. Now, Peter may not understand fully how all of this is happening or, or every uh, facet of who Jesus is, but there seems to be something here embryonic in his understanding that the person standing before him is the Lord of glory. And again, you'll note the way he refers to him. I am a sinful man, O Lord. And this is the word uh, kurios. This is the word that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament when they have the word Lord, this is the word they use to translate that. So here it's very likely that Peter is using the, the, the way which you can say the divine name without saying the divine name. Where we would say the word is, is translated as Yahweh in the Old Testament. You'll know in our Old Testament we translate it all capitals, Lord. So here Peter is no longer calling him Master, but calling him Lord. In verse 9, all of these other seasoned fishermen are just absolutely astonished. They are standing in awe. 
These are the soon-to-be disciples here looking at the power that Jesus has. And what is really just a, a rather small miracle. In the grand scheme of things that Jesus is doing, this amazing haul of fish is actually really pretty minor. But they know in that instance that who they're dealing with, or rather they know that who they thought they were dealing with is not who he actually is, but rather he has greater authority and greater power. And so at the end of verse 10, Jesus responds to them with, again, these words that, that God seems to utter in many instances. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Because we can almost kind of laugh at the situation of the boat sinking under all of this weight of all of this fish. And, and what are these men going to now do in their lives if they had come across Jesus? But I think, again, if we were, if we were there in the midst of this, that suddenly this man was able to wield power that no ordinary human being should ever be able to do. And in that instance, he was just preaching about the kingdom of God, about liberating the captives, and suddenly, at the snap of his fingers, this great haul of fish came about where it shouldn't have been, and greater than anything they had ever caught before. And so I think rightly, Jesus says, don't be afraid. Because they're standing in awe. There, there is fear here. Don't worry, he says. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. And what's amazing is the second half of what he says. From now on, you will be catching men. You will be catching men. You're probably used to the words in Matthew where it says, I will make you fishers of men. Luke here uses a, a word that actually means catch alive which I didn't actually know until reading this passage, that Greek had a word that meant you can capture things alive. And I wonder if Luke is just realizing that fishermen typically catch things dead. I don't know what Luke is thinking, but it seems to be that he's reminding them that what they're doing is they're bringing dead people to life. They're bringing people to everlasting life. And in verse 11, what do the fishermen do? And again, you have to think back to the situation. They had just pulled in this incredible haul of fish that it would be worth a tremendous amount of money. This is the greatest haul that they had ever pulled in. Again, remember, the boats weren't even capable of handling this. And they have before, him, before them on the land, they have their, their boats that they've invested in. They have their livelihood, and they have the greatest, uh, greatest amount of wealth, potential wealth there in their hands. And what do they do? They just walk away. They walk away from it. Their boats are left, presumably, just moored there on the beach. The fish is left there in a pile. Their nets are left. All of their stuff, everything that they have, all of their, their past life, their job, everything is left in an instant. And they follow Jesus. Why? It's not just that they saw this great miracle. Because again, I think Matthew and Mark leave it out to point to the fact that Jesus just simply has the authority and ability to demand that they follow him. Right? We've seen this through chapter 4 and now chapter 5, that Jesus just simply has authority over the physical world. He can call on, on fish to, to, to come in great abundance so that they'll be captured in these nets. Later on, he can calm storms with a, a word. With just a simple command, he can tell demons to flee, sickness to reverse. 
And right, all of this, when his, his, his care over the physical world, his power over the physical world, it is not so that he can call rocks and trees and wildlife to be obedient to him, but to call men and women to obedience by faith. And we see also in this episode, really it's behind the scenes, but we can make a reasonable assumption that Jesus calls these men to, uh, to follow him, and the Holy Spirit is at work to grant this obedience. And again, I think Matthew and Mark highlight this by, by leaving out this catch of fish there. That the Spirit worked a mighty miracle in these men that just at the call of Jesus, they walk and leave everything behind and follow him. And that's the wonder, even in this passage, we see that the power of the Holy Spirit can be at work in us to, to, to be those who walk away from that sinful life of rebellion and disobedience. But by the power of the Spirit, he awakens faith inside us so that we can then follow Jesus. But also think from this episode, think of the responsibility. Think of the responsibility that, that we have, that those fishermen had really two things. They had a really short sermon, presumably, and they had this one mighty miracle. And based off of that, they walked away from their livelihood and followed Jesus. Many of them didn't know it, but all of them basically had signed a death sentence, were signed a death sentence. Every one of them was going to die, apart from John. But think of our responsibility. Think of the responsibility laid upon us now who have the entirety of the Old Testament, who know how Jesus fits into the way in which the Old Testament was revealing and how the New Testament is fulfilling. And then think of the ways in which the Bible commands us to follow Jesus, that we have so much more than these fishermen have. And so we're called to follow Jesus to be discarding our idols like these useless fishing boats, to be leaving behind these things that get in our way. I mean, just think about it. Part of the reason I think they just abandoned these fishing boats is they realized that their calling now was to catch men, that boats aren't very useful in that endeavor. And so they leave these behind, and there's that same call in our life to, to leave behind all of these idols and all of these dead weights that hang on to us in order that we may follow Jesus. We have a new commission in our life. Well, then Luke continues showing us these episodes in Jesus's life, a way in which he has authority over others. In, in verses 12 through 16, we have this hurting man who comes to the Savior to find relief. And just as we, we had this episode where you had Jesus uh, coming to these fishermen. His, his job is not coming in a way in which he's teaching the fishermen how to fish better, but rather demonstrating his authority over all creation. And here we see Jesus' authority being greater than that of the priests. He's not telling that the priests are doing a bad job. right? He actually affirms the, the use and the necessity of the priests and of the law in this episode. But what he is showing is that just as he's greater than these fishermen, by these fishermen catch fish, Jesus creates fish, <laughs> Jesus directs fish. So here he is this ultimate priest, because the, the priests of old could never actually do anything. They, they couldn't actually cure leprosy. They couldn't cure any of these diseases. They were just there to, to monitor these diseases. 
and to then be able to sign off that they have been cured by God. And so this man comes, he's full of leprosy, Luke says, and, and you're probably aware that the Bible, when we translate it, we use leprosy to actually mean a whole host of skin diseases, not just what's called Hansen's disease, which is what we usually mean today with the word leprosy. But whatever this man has, he is contagious. He is full of it, covered in it, if, if you will, that he is completely consumed. And because of that, this man is completely isolated. Right? He'd be barred from cities. He'd be barred from the temple. Uh, he'd have to, to, to tell others as he walks that he is unclean so that people would be able to give him a wide berth. Feels a bit like COVID regulations before COVID sometimes. But nonetheless, this, this man was completely isolated from others. Right? You, you couldn't touch this man. Not only couldn't you touch him, but he needed to actually, by law, stay far away from you. But he comes to the Savior. He comes, he's this man who is hopeless, who is desperate, and yet has hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he comes to this merciful Savior. And I think all of the, 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 the different episodes in Jesus' life, to me, when he heals lepers, is one of the most touching scenes in all of Jesus' earthly ministry. Because, again, this man is 100% unclean. And anything he touches makes it then unclean. If he were to be here today and sit next to you and touch you, you would then be ceremonially unclean, potentially also actually physically unclean by catching this contagion. So if, if a priest were to touch him, he would be unclean from service and barred from service. And so usually the way in which Scripture teaches is that unholiness, uncleanliness, flows in a straight contagious line. There are actually a few rare exceptions. Actually, if you were to touch the altar, anything that touches the altar would then be made holy, which is why there's such a strong prohibition of anyone coming close to it. But note what happens here. Jesus comes and touches him. He says, I will be clean. He stretches out his hand and touches him. Suddenly, now... This man is clean immediately because Jesus has touched him. That holiness and cleanliness actually flowed forth and out from Jesus to this man, that Jesus did not take any of his uncleanliness. Jesus being perfectly holy, this man now became clean immediately. It's just this wonderful image of really of salvation. Right? We who are sinners... Uh, we who are our broken individuals, we come to Jesus, and Jesus gives us cleansing. Jesus gives us righteousness. That we become clean in the sight of God immediately. Well, Jesus then, after cleansing this man, he, he just affirms the law. That this man would have been publicly known as a, a leper. He would have been publicly barred from all of these places, now being miraculously cleaned and cleanse, he needs to go to the priest, offer the sacrifices, and have the priest basically sign off that this man was clean so he could be reintegrated into society. And he tells him, he tells this man to, to, to go immediately to the priest, but don't tell anyone. And again, there's this theme where Jesus is, is directing others, like demons, to not testify, this man to not testify. 
it seems to be that the idea here is that he doesn't want to be confused with the type of Messiah that could easily come to people's mind, that he is a wonder worker, they, that he is here to just do all of these, these healing miracles as a great prophet of God instead of as the true Messiah whose primary mission is to preach and proclaim the kingdom of God. And so just in this, we, we not only see Jesus' authority, but we just simply see the compassion and the care of our Savior. Right? On, on the one hand, theologically, yes, Jesus is the greatest and the final priest. He, he has authority and power greater than any earthly priest ever could. The book of Hebrews says he's of the order of Melchizedek, meaning that he's of an order that supersedes the uh, priesthood of Aaron. And part of that we see in this verse is that he just has the ability to heal, unlike the priests in the Old Testament. So theologically, yes, that's exactly what's going on here. But I also think what we see in this passage is the way in which our Savior cares for others. And think about the way in which we, we know we're supposed to go and to, uh, to teach and preach others about the gospel, just as we saw in the episode above with the uh, fishermen turned disciples. But here, there's this call for us to be those who go out like Jesus in the, the process of praying and helping to see people come to, to wholeness. This kind and compassionate caring, in many ways, this actually becomes later on the, the work of the deacons, to physically care for others, to make sure that worship is not inhibited. I mean, think of the way Paul does this. He speaks of the ways in which we're supposed to go to those who are in sin. He says we're to do this gently. So really, Paul's taking here in Galatians 6, one the worst case scenario, brothers sister who's in sin, you are to go gently to them in order to restore them back to wholeness. And maybe speaking there of the, the worst in terms of sin, how are we to be as those who are suffering? Paul speaks of a, a gentleness. And we see that in the life of Jesus, this gentleness to restore others. That Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, he was gentle and lowly and kind and caring and compassionate to those who are suffering. And finally, just quickly, Jesus' authority over the lawyers. This is a, another well-known passage here of the paralyzed man who is brought to Jesus by his friends. Jesus is teaching again. And these friends lower him through the roof tiles into the midst because there's such a great crowd around Jesus. But again, we're seeing just like the leper that their faith is what's driving them. Their faith that Jesus is who he says he is, that Jesus can heal. And so they, they lower him down here. And I think they're met with a surprise. They're met with a surprise as this man who clearly needs physical healing, right? He's laying on a mat. He's immobile. He's been lowered by his friends into the midst of Jesus who has been healing people left and right. And Jesus looks at this man in the midst of these people, and he says, your sins are forgiven. I don't know what that man would be saying, but I'm sure something along the lines of, that's great and all, but I've got a bigger problem on my hands here. But I think what Jesus is, is showing, what Jesus is showing here is that the purpose of his ministry was coming not that we would all be physically healed, Right, you remember the, the, the episode in Nazareth, what he tells the people is that there were many widows during this time, but God chose this one to help. He didn't help every one of them. He didn't heal everyone. And Jesus, when he came, he just did not heal every single person on the earth. 
of their physical ailments. What Jesus came to do ultimately was to heal the relationship between man and God. That Jesus is trying to show the priority here that this man's sin, this man's broken relationship with God, that's the priority. And he uses this in order to, to show a greater to a, a lesser miracle that happened. Not the other way around. The, the greater miracle that happens is that man, this man's sin is forgiven. The lesser miracle is that he was made and able to walk again. And the teachers of the law, they, they start to kind of understand that there's a problem here. They, they, they rightly understand only God can forgive sins. But then they wrongly misunderstand Jesus' relationship to the Father. That Jesus is God's only Son, and therefore he can forgive sins. And for, for Jesus to show these people before him that he actually has the power to forgive sins. right? He says that, that famous line, which is easier for me to say, your sins are forgiven, or rise and walk. Right, because in, in an earthly vein, it's very easy for people to say your sins are forgiven, isn't it? It's an internal disposition. There wouldn't be any really verifiable proof of whether that has happened or not. But clearly, this man who is paralyzed, if he can take up his mat and walk out of there, it is evident that Jesus has this power and authority. And so with this man in the midst, he commands him to take up his bed. One commentator put it this way. He said, the bed that bore the man... Now, because of the Lord Jesus Christ, the man bears the bed out. It's this wonderful turn of events that this bed that had to carry him, now, because of Jesus Christ, he carries this bed out. This great transformation that has taken place, and he glorifies God. The people are filled with awe. They are glorifying God at this great event. And again, just as we saw above, it wasn't necessarily that the, the law in itself was bad. Or the teachers of the law, when they were rightly uh, interpreting it, were bad. But it was just the same as the priests were powerless. So the teachers of the law and the law itself is powerless to make any internal change. You know, Moses, this great teacher of the law, the Ten Commandments, these great ethical commands that were to follow, right? That their intent was never to cause heart change, an internal change inside you. Right? The Ten Commandments, or Moses, if we were standing here, actually can't make you holy. But that's not a knock against the Ten Commandments or against Moses. That doesn't mean they weren't doing their job. Their intended job was to direct people on the path to holiness and direct them to the God who forgives. You know, the law cannot, and it was just never intended to make you holy, to solve and fix that relationship between God and man. And that's why you see when the new covenant is talked about as an internalizing covenant, a covenant where the heart is changed, where the law is written on hearts, not on stone tablets. And so Jesus comes as this teacher of the law par excellence. The one who not only teaches the law, but can make those changes inside of it, inside of us. And so just as we come to a close here, right, Jesus' authority here in these passages are not how to do your job better. He's not coming telling priests how to do their job better, teachers of the law to do their job better, or fishermen how to do their job better. Rather, he's showing that he is the ultimate fulfillment, that none of these people could actually accomplish these things. Jesus can, and so he has this rightful authority to call us, to cleanse us, 
and to forgive us. In many ways, I think they, they flow from each other, right? That we are forgiven, so we are cleansed, so we follow. And for us, he calls us, right, to, to go and to preach and to proclaim and to care for others. I think in many of the ways in which this flows down, he actually even calls us then to forgive others because we have been forgiven. To care for others because he cares for us. And finally, for, for Christians, that's our job to do, to preach, to proclaim, to bring the kingdom. For those who are not Christians, right, Jesus is demonstrated here as the one who only has true authority. Unlike governments, unlike others, Jesus is the only one who can actually say something, and we're supposed to obey it. But on the flip side, Jesus is the one that we can only find hope in. Every other hope in the world will let you down at some point. But there's only one person who has transcended death. There's only one way of reconciliation, one way of renewal, one way of finding peace in a restored relationship, and that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, of course, he has authority to call us. And if you're not a believer here today, are you following Jesus? Are you hearing his call to follow? Where he says, my burden is light, my yoke is easy. He bids us come. He is the gentle and loving Savior, the shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. Let us pray. You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres.co.uk for more. Thank you.